Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were extremely astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who Our first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul once wrote, Having seen the true nature of his prideful confidence, this man is bluntly denied the possibility of entering the kingdom on his own merit. He preferred to worship his money instead of God. Let us never be found professing Christ while remaining idolaters. So, Brother Jason was talking about the beauty of technology and how we are able to communicate, you know, all the way around the world, and that we we have this ability to do great things. Technology is a wonderful, wonderful tool, but ta- technology also can get us in trouble. In fact, the other day, Kim and I were driving to Bakersfield um, with a mom and her teenager, and uh, as we were on our way, we were talking in in, in my truck, and and then uh, my truck, you know, it interrupts us into the conversation with a very loud beep which startled my wife, and then it announces, you have a new text message, right? Because my phone and, you know, and my truck are connected via Bluetooth because I guess, you know, the lawmakers and the phone makers and the vehicle makers think it's safer for me to have those things integrated so that way I don't have to touch it to actually use it. And so it breaks in and it says, you have a new text message from Christine Mueller, which is one of the people on our worship team. And so I say to my wife, well, just hit that listen button, and we can actually hear what the message actually says, right? Because my truck is, is equipped with that. It'll take text messages, and, and with a computer-generated female voice, it will, it will you know, give the message. Now, why is it female? I have no idea what's, why they do what they do, right? But, but so she pushes the button, and, and the female computer-generated voices, voice says this. It says, me too. We want to, we want to take a shower. Happy. And, and that meant the, the, the emoji smiley face meant happy. To which my wife goes, huh, what is that all about? <laughs> right? And, and the lady and the teenage girl in the back seat, they're giggling, you know, because my text message just says, me too, we want to take a shower, happy. Right? And I begin to blush in that moment because I honestly, in that moment, have no idea what this text message is even about, right? And for two reasons. Number one, like, we use electronic communication all the time. Text messaging, uh, Facebook Messenger. In fact, that's how Brother Tate and I uh, actually com- communicated, setting this up today, right? Uh, emails, 
People are messaging me through Twitter. I mean, and, and now WhatsApp. I mean, there's just a lot of different ways. I have electronic communication going off all the time. In fact, if I check my phone right now, there'll probably be messages in multiple different formats. And so in that, I can't always keep track of all the conversations. Number, and, and the second reason, Christine and I, during that day, had a conversation about three hours earlier than that, which means whatever we talked about is no longer here, Right? Right? And so this text message comes in three hours after our last interaction. So for the life of me, I have no idea what this is about. A whole lot of stuff has happened in three hours. And so for me, this text message is kind of out of the blue, especially now that I'm reading this or having this conversation read to me by my truck, right? And so all I have is this female computer-generated voice saying, me too, we want to take a shower, happy. And again, my wife doesn't miss any opportunities at all to give me a bad time, right? <laughs> playing to this crowd in the back seat and who's now laughing at my expense. She's like, so what's going on here? And all I have is, is, is to say is like, look, I have no idea. Just read the text messages on my phone, right? So that way we can actually see what's going on here. And so she begins to read. And so Christine earlier in the day had texted me, hi, pastor, I'm not going to make it to the theology class because it's Wednesday. I have a theology class that we teach on Wednesday nights. I'm not going to be able to make it to the theology class tonight. My landlord is here with a bunch of workers replacing pipes in the bathroom and the tub. It's been a day-long project, and they're not yet done. I'll, I'll get the notes and listen to, uh, to you on, on YouTube. Smiley face, or happy, right? To which I then respond, okay, no worries. I hope they get it fixed. To then which she responds, three hours later, right? <laughs> Me too. We want to take a shower. Happy. All right. To which my wife says, well, that makes more sense. <laughs> to which that I said, that right there is why context matters, by the way. Right. And it does in real life, but it also matters in the Bible as well. Right? And that's what we've been talking about over and over again, is that context matters. Right? Conversationally, but also it matters in the scriptures. When you take a, a scripture in the Bible, the best way for you to approach that is to understand its context. The truth is, as we've seen over and over throughout this Gospel of Mark, right, that, that, that Jesus, what he's been teaching and doing, all those things have a context. A historical context, a cultural context, an immediate surrounding context, the literary context, and then also the thematic context. And one of the things that we, we need to keep in mind as we move forward now, as we get into the, the heart of the, the Gospel of Mark, as we move forward, um, Mark has been developing several important theological threads and themes that, that, uh, that he's pulling along. Themes like the divinity of Christ. That was like one of the opening themes that we, we saw right from the very beginning. Mark declares that, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is divine. Over and over again, we're going to see that thread pop up again and again and again in, in his miracles. In fact, if you remember the time when they ripped the, the, the roof off of Peter's house, and he, he goes to heal the paralytic man, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the people there rightly ask the question, wait a minute, who can forgive sins but God, right? That's the question they ask, because why? Jesus is declaring very clearly that he has that, that prerogative. So the divinity of Christ, and then also what we see is the hardness of man's heart, again and again, that pops up throughout the Gospel of Mark. The sovereignty of God, God's all-omnipotent power, right? The, the spiritual blindness of the apostles as they begin to struggle to understand who Christ is and his mission on earth. If you remember, you know, Peter declares that, he, that Jesus is the Christ and then turns right around and says, by the way, you can't die because, you know, it's just not, you know, becoming of you. And then Jesus says, what? Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter, though he has some insight, is still battling spiritual blindness. He, um, we also see the radical nature of salvation. Salvation is the radical transformation of our nature, which then leads to our radical commitment to Christ. Because what is the commitment that Christ calls all of his followers to? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. All of these things are growing theological themes that influence then the understanding of, of every subsequent text, which, by the way, is exactly what we're going to see today. Today's text is really a summary of several theological threads um, that, that Mark has been, been weaving together to this point. This text is an important milestone in the story of Christ as he continues to teach his disciples what it means to really follow him and what it, and, and, and 
and, and what it means for them to actually embrace this suffering as he makes his way towards the cross. In today's text, we're going to see a number of these themes come together that gives greater clarity to the gospel itself, to Christ's mission on the earth, and, and our part in that mission. Again, that's the reason why we're in this series in the first place. That's why we're walking through Mark step by step is because we want to learn what it means to be like Christ and to follow in his footsteps. Now understand, this text here that we're going to approach here has a lot to teach us. There's a lot of pass- there's, there's a lot in this passage to unpack. In fact, there's more than we can cover in one sermon and even several sermons. In fact, if you remember, a few weeks ago, Brother David Larson recently preached on this very text, helping us to see that materialism can get in the way of, of our walk with God and then how the idols can, can take a hold of us and get in the way of, of us actually like understanding who Christ is and going where he leads. And, and really the point that David was making was self-reliance is fatal to our spiritual health, right? Because it keeps us from the gospel. And even I preached on this text many, many years ago uh, in a series titled Distracted, um, which, which, by the way, was the inspiration for the book. And, and I still even reference this text in the book pointing out that, that the heart of our issue with God is really ultimately a heart issue. That, that anything that we value, anything that we love, anything that we esteem greater than God is, is a horrible distraction in our relationship with God and gets in the way of our, our understanding the gospel. Not to mention, you can take this text and you can type it into YouTube and you will find many, many great expository sermons about it. Uh, from the likes of John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Bodie Bauckham, John Piper, and many, many, many wonderful um, Bible expositors can actually unpack this text. And each one of them, you'll learn something new. And so I want you to understand, there is a lot to learn in this particular text, and there's a lot of applications we can take from this text. So when I'm done here, understand, I haven't said all there is to say about this. There's still more, right? But today, given the fact that we're looking at this from a discipleship standpoint... I really want us to focus our attention on how this passage fits in with the overall context of this narrative, how it fits the flow of how Mark is developing this gospel, how these themes are coming together uh, in this picture of what it means to follow Christ. This text is a summary of, of those things that Jesus prepares, um, right, that, that, that Jesus uh, prepares as he prepares his way to work his way to the cross of Calvary. This is a summary of the things that he's been talking about. So again, turn with me back to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And that first part of the verse reads this way. It says, and he was setting out on his journey. And this right here reminds us, this is an important reminder of where we are in the story. This reminds us that the momentum of Christ's life and ministry has changed. If you remember, Jesus has now completed his ministry in Galilee. He's already done all that work in Capernaum. He has already ministered to Jews and Gentiles in their, in their respective areas. He has already performed all kinds of miracles. And now he has entered into the region of Judea, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And he is now steadily making his way, right, to the climax um, you know, of his time here on earth. Everything now is moving toward the cross itself, which means at this point, Jesus has been ministering for nearly three years now. Right? And his disciples have been with him nearly all that time. And, and even now, as we have seen, if you remember, we've been, as we've been talking about, Right? The disciples are still struggling with spiritual blindness and pride. I mean, Jesus has revealed himself in the Mount Transfiguration. They have seen him do incredible things. He has rebuked them. He has talked to them. He's corrected them. But they still struggle with understanding Christ's mission and their part in that mission. And with that, this part of the story is one more prominent milestone um, in this journey toward the cross. And then right after this, it says, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And one of the things that, that Brother David Larson had said, he pointed out in this message that should get our attention, is, is, is this striking event. I mean, I mean, think about this. A full-grown man running up to another full-grown man, falling on his knees, right, is really a pretty unusual event, even for today. As David Larson asks, when's the last time that's happened to you? When's the last time somebody come running up to you, right, and fell on their knees, right? 
Or when's the last time that you ran up to somebody that you really held in high esteem, right? We just typically don't do those things. And I want you to understand in that context, they didn't either. So this should grab our attention because, because this is not just some random man, right? We see in this context that actually that he's rich, that he's wealthy. In fact, the, uh, the Gospel of Luke says that he's a ruler, that he's a synagogue ruler. He's important. So this is not, you know, so this is a man of wealth and influence. This is not just some nobody off the street. This isn't a poor man who has no other options and nowhere else to turn, right? This is not a man who is a cast off in society that nobody will have anything to do with. This is a wealthy, right, moral, prominent member of the community, which makes this even more unusual because wealthy people right, in that culture didn't run. In fact, men of dignity didn't run. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, when you hear about the father running to the son, that should, that should make you stop and ask the question, why? Why? Because men just didn't do that. It was undignified. They didn't run. Much less these men didn't actually fall, you know, on their face before the people. That's just not something they did, right? And so this is an unusual kind of circumstance. It should really kind of prime our minds to see what's happening here. And notice he says, or he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I'm not going to sit here and unpack what all that good teacher stuff means, because again, I think uh, David Larson did a great job with that. He went through the Greek and explained exactly what that meant. In fact, I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to it, to go back to listen to that message. But there's actually something else in this in this, I want you to see in this text. And, and it's the fact that, that how this man responds to Jesus, right? how this Jewish man right, responds to Jesus makes it very clear that he has obviously heard about Christ, that he has heard about what he's doing and his supernatural works, right? but he's also right, has heard about Jesus preaching about the kingdom of God. He has heard about Jesus specifically preaching about eternal life. That's a subject that he has heard about. Now, notice he doesn't come up to Jesus and ask, will you, will you heal me? Or will you heal one of my family members? He doesn't ask, hey, will you cast out a demon out of my cousin? Right? He doesn't ask for Jesus to do a miracle like you know, uh, make more food. He doesn't ask for any sign or miracle at all. He simply comes up and he asks about eternal life. He's asking about the gospel, which means he has either heard or heard about Jesus proclaiming the good news, the gospel. And, and, and I'm going to... I have to say right here, like if there's something that you like sit up and pay attention to, this is it. Because this is important for us. Because people in our day, critics of Christianity and people, some even who claim to be Christians that just simply deny what is considered orthodox teaching about Christianity, right? These people push back on this notion that Christ himself preaches the gospel that we preach. There is this sense in, in a lot of people, especially those who, who, who th- fancy themselves as elites and ac- academics, right? especially on, on, on the liberal side, right? there's something in them that, that will say, the gospel we preach today is not, what gospel was, not the gospel Jesus was preaching. They will say that, that the gospel that, that, we, that, that, that Paul preached is not even the same. Right? They push back on the notion that Christ, in his time, came to offer eternal life for those who believed in him, and that he offered judgment for those who refused. There are people who believe that our understanding that we hold to, that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, right? Is it, they believe that that's a doctrine that was created after Christ was gone, that Christ never actually like, meant that or taught that. They will say that Jesus never taught that gospel, that, that he was teaching something else. They will say that he was talking not about where we're going, but how we should live. Right? In fact, one of, the, one of the very popular versions of that is that what Jesus was talking about is social justice. Right? That, that Jesus was more concerned about social justice than he was about our eternity. That, that, that this was a teaching about how we are to love each other. That this isn't about heaven or hell or eternal life or eternal condemnation. This is the view of those who look at the quote-unquote historical Christ and separate that from the biblical Christ. And they, they see Jesus as a good teacher and a great example of what it means to be a perfect human being, but he's not the living son of God. Right? This is the view of the universalists who say that that. The wrath of God and the judgment of God are not real. 
That, that we, they believe that, that a loving God was, is, is, has a plan to save everyone regardless of, of what they do. Their view simply is that Jesus taught a different gospel than Paul himself. That, that the gospel that we hold to, that we talk about today here in America and in Honduras and Pakistan or wherever, isn't the same gospel that Jesus taught. The gospel we preach today in their minds is different. They're Their view is just simply that. But then the problem, though, is we see the text like this here in Mark. There's no other explanation. We see here in Mark this man falling on his knees before Christ, asking about eternal life and how he can have it. And think about this. He runs, right? He runs to Jesus, falls on his knees to ask him about it. He just didn't walk up and say, hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? He falls prostrate before him which means he had heard about Jesus' preaching, or maybe he even heard Jesus preach himself. I don't know the exact circumstances. The Bible doesn't specify that. But there's something about what Jesus has been preaching that prompted this reaction in him. Something in him understands that Jesus knows the answer. Now with that, what I want you to notice is that Jesus doesn't answer the question the way that we would think that he would. Like, he doesn't answer the question the way that we think that, 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 or that we would, right? He says, what must I do to have eternal life? And we would expect him to say something like, repent and believe the gospel, because that's exactly how Jesus started his preaching ministry, right? right? He began and said, the time is now, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. That's his call from the very beginning. That's what I would expect him to say. I think that that's probably what I would say in that circumstance. We expect him to say, put your trust in me and follow me. But that's not what he does here. And again, I think this is a great place to ask the question, why? Whenever you see something that's unusual or you go, wait a minute, that's not how I would have done that or that seems out of place, you should stop and ask the question, why? Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he actually say that? Well, the reason, actually, when you look at this, is very instructive for us. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he, this man, said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. You see, the reason why Jesus doesn't tell this man to repent and believe the gospel at this point is because it won't make any sense, right? Because the rich young ruler doesn't even think he has anything to repent of. Look at his response. In fact, notice how Jesus sets this up, right? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Jesus makes it very clear that there is no one who is good but God alone. Now, please understand, Jesus isn't denying his inherent sinless perfection, as some people would assume. They would say this, well, here's a clear example, that Jesus didn't see himself as completely sinless. That's not what he's doing here, right? And that he's not denying his deity, right? Because some, again, will say, well, Jesus never said that he's God, and he never never meant for people to understand him as God. That's not what's happening here, right? Rather, Jesus is pointing toward the only objective standard for good there is in the universe, and that is who? God. And anything less than God's perfect standard is by definition what? Not good. right? That's why Paul, in his letter to the Romans, can universally without question pronounce judgment on all of mankind, both the Jews and the Gentiles alike in Romans chapter 3. He says very clearly for us, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've all become worthless. No one does what? Good. No one. Not even one. And then verse 23, he kind of gives us a summary of all this and says, for what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has. Which means by default, nobody's good. No one but God is good. Jesus, right, he points this man to God's perfect standard and says, no one is good but God, right? And then he turns around him and basically in essence says, but what about you? You know the commandments, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. You know, in essence, what the standard is. You know what God requires of you. And this ruler demonstrates very clearly for all those who are there to hear 
what his real problem is. As he says, teacher, all of these I have kept since my youth. Let me bottom line for you what's happening here. Jesus has just said, no one is good but God. And his standard is basically perfect. The only one is good is God, right? And notice the rich man's response is in effect this. Me too. I'm good. I obey the law. I do the things that are required. I do what I'm supposed to. I've been doing it since I was a little kid. Right? I'm good. Isn't this the cry of the entire world around us, by the way? Well, God wouldn't send somebody like me to hell. Why? Well, because I'm a good person. <laughs> by what standard? You see, Jesus doesn't tell him to repent and believe the gospel because this man is self-righteous. He doesn't think, he doesn't believe he has anything to repent of. He has nothing to turn away from. He sincerely thinks that he is good because of his external actions. He thinks that external conformity to the rules makes him right with God. That's, that's the right slide up there, right? Okay, perfect. Somewhere last service, I lost Kim in the weeds, so. Yes. <laughs> But he thinks that the external conformity to the rules makes him right with God. He doesn't understand what the problem really is. That's why Jesus doesn't give him the solution to the problem. Because the solution to the problem will not make any sense to you unless you understand what the problem itself is. Like we say multiple times, taking medication doesn't make any sense to you unless you understand what the diagnosis is. There's not any way that any of us in our right minds are going to subject ourselves to two months of intensive chemotherapy if we believe all we have wrong with us is the flu, even if it is the coronavirus. The solution makes no sense unless you understand the problem. This man does not understand his problem. He thinks that salvation is within his reach. Right? He, in fact, notice how he phrases the question, what must I do? Me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to earn it? What must I do to gain it? What must I do? Right? This is the question basically that helps us to understand everything else that Jesus is going to deal with and say in this section. What can I do by my power? Right? I mean, I've already done everything else. I've already followed the rules. I've already kept the law. I'm a good person. So what else do I need to do? The this is the essence of this entire conversation. This man doesn't understand his problem. He thinks external conformity to the law, obeying the rules, is what's going to make him right before God. This is the problem he faces. Right? The problem he faces, or he believes he faces, is one of behavior. He thinks the issue is how we behave. But hear me, church. The problem isn't your behavior. Right? The behavior is the fruit, it's not the root. The problem is not your behavior, the problem is your heart. The problem isn't the fact that you sin, Is the problem is that you are by your nature a sinner. The problem isn't the fact that you rebel against God, the problem is you are a rebel at heart. Right? You may be able to keep yourself from, from, from breaking the law, right? and you might be able to even keep yourself from sinning most of the time, but that doesn't change the fact that your heart is still corrupt and you are a sinner. This man doesn't understand this. That's why Jesus doesn't say repent and believe the gospel. He doesn't, he doesn't have anything to repent of in his own mind. So doing that and then believing the gospel for him would be pointless. The gospel doesn't even make sense to anybody that doesn't have something to repent of. If you don't see that, you, that your problem is that you're a sinner, then you don't, just, you don't need to be saved. So instead of calling him to repent and believe, instead he prescribes something to him that challenges his self-righteous assumptions. And notice what Jesus says, looking at him, loved him, and said to him. Now I want you to notice he loved him. This means sincerely loved him. Jesus even loves those that reject him. Loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, come follow me. Jesus said, you think that you're good, but there's something that you, that's missing. There's one thing that you lack. Now understand what he's saying, right? Because a lot of people will misconstrue this. The problem is not the fact that he's rich, okay? The problem is not the fact that he has wealth, 
right? The problem is altogether different. In fact, to understand his problem, what you need to notice is that Jesus, right, said only God is good, and he follows up with, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. These are all commandments and how we are to treat other people. And actually, what people don't realize, maybe, is that this is a summary of the second half of the, the Ten Commandments. He said the pivotal change in the Ten Commandments is how, you, is, is how you honor your father and mother, and then it's how you treat other people. Right? It's about other people. And so the first half of the Ten Commandments is about God and how we relate to him. The second half is about how we treat other people. Jesus doesn't mention the first part here. He just simply asks about the second half of the Ten Commandments. Because it, because it would be you know, assumed, at least by this man, because he's Jewish, that he already understood and fulfilled the first half of the Ten Commandments. Because it's important. In fact, you know, somebody asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? In Mark chapter 12, it says, um, Jesus answers, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, which is the Shema. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. You see, what it comes, when it comes to loving other people, this man believes he was good. He believes that he kept those commandments. And being Jewish, he believed that he was already good on the first part as well. In fact, that was really one of the issues that the Jews had, is they believed that they were good with God. They believed that they, that they honored and revered God. In fact, that's they, they, what they did every day. They, re- they recited the Shema. They believed that they loved God with all their hearts. They believed that God was first in their life. And why wouldn't this man believe that? I mean, he was a ruler of a synagogue, for crying out loud, right? He was a prominent member of the Jewish community. Everybody looked up to him. And God had obviously been blessing him and making him rich. So why wouldn't he believe that he'd already obeyed this important commandment, that he'd love God supremely? This man was really self-righteous in every possible way that you could be self-righteous. And because of that, he couldn't see what his problem was. The problem was his heart. And Jesus challenges him. You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. In other words, you think that you're good, and you think that you absolutely love God supremely? Okay. Prove it. Right? Sell everything you have, give it all away, and follow me, right? That'll really reveal for you what, where your heart really is, right? Because don't trust in your position, don't trust in your money, right? Trust in me alone, right? Give it all away and come and sacrifice and follow me. This right here is the echo of Mark chapter 8, by the way. Right? This is a living example of the challenge that, that, that Christ lays out. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake would save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is the living example of exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus said, if you want eternal life, then do what you got to do to follow me. But understand, following me means willingly giving everything else up. Right? Following me means denying yourself. Denying yourself and making me first and going where I ask you to go. And it means depending upon me alone and going where I lead, even if it means that you need to suffer greatly all the way to the cross. And to add emphasis to this point, right, this story, I don't know if you realize, this is why context is always so important, is situated between two other stories. Where on the one end, Jesus just now taught about what it requires, what's required to, to enter the kingdom of God, which is what? Childlike, helpless dependence on God. Right? And on the other end, Jesus is going to talk about, for the third time, his crucifixion, that he is soon going to be killed and raised from the dead. And in between this, Jesus is pointing this man to these truths, these twin truths about entering the kingdom of God, of having eternal life. It requires two things, absolute dependence upon Christ and Christ alone, and a complete commitment to him in spite of the cost, because Jesus doesn't want part of your life. He wants your whole life. Hear me. Jesus doesn't want to be a peripheral addition to your life. To your life, he wants to be the center of your life. That's what Jesus is pointing him to. Do you really love God? 
you really want eternal life? Then you must be completely dependent upon me and completely committed to me. So go and sell everything you have and follow me. But his response is this. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I want you to realize that obedience always brings joy, and disobedience always brings sorrow. But understand, I want you to see what's happening here. Okay? This is the part where you stop and you slow down and you put the pieces together. All right? Jesus, I mean, this man comes to Jesus. He comes to him for what purpose? To ask about eternal life. And, and he asks, right, what must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus reveals to him what the problem is. The problem is not your behavior. The problem is your heart. The problem isn't that you can't obey the rules. The problem is you are self-reliant, self-righteous, and self-dependent. The problem is that you don't really think you need God. You just think you just need a little something from him. The problem is that you think that salvation is really something that you can have by your efforts, that you somehow deserve it, that you can, that you can be saved without any kind of real commitment to go where Christ is leading you. There's only one way to come into the kingdom, as Jesus just said, like a child in helpless dependence upon God alone, completely, totally dependent on God to save you. Your wealth can't save you. Your stature in the community won't save you. Your ability to adhere to the letter of the law is not going to save you. The only thing that you that can save you is to commit to and depend upon Christ through faith. That's it. Let go of everything else. Hold on to Christ is the call. Let go of everything else you're trusting in and depending on for salvation and grab a hold of Christ. Jesus basically told him exactly what he needed to know. In fact, Jesus in his own way is basically, in essence, saying, repent of your own life, your old life, and the way that you used to do things, and what you're hoping in, like your wealth, and turn and trust and, and follow me. Don't set your eyes on, on your stuff and yourself. Set your eyes on me and me alone. But it says that disheartened, he went by, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In fact, the word disheartened here, if, I, if I'm correct, it kind of gives this, it can be used of like storm clouds and of kind of like gloominess. This man, this man met I want you to think about this, okay? Because I think we have this assumption, if we're going to meet Jesus, that, that, that suddenly it, we would just be different, okay? This man met Jesus face to face, and Jesus tells him exactly what's required of him to be saved, to enter the kingdom, but rather than receiving the gospel with great joy, he becomes emotionally distraught, and he walks away from the author of life himself. Why? I mean, he heard Jesus preaching. He heard about his miracles. That's why he ran and fell at his feet. He believed something about Jesus. He believed that Jesus knew the answer. Why would he then turn away? Why would he not heed the call? Why didn't he repent of his selfishness and turn to faith in Christ? Well, it's because of this theme that's been running throughout the entire gospel of Mark that we've been seeing. There are two types of people in the world. There's those people who who are in the kingdom, and then those who are not. There are those people who, who believe, and there's those people that won't, no matter what you do. There are those people who will be saved, and there's those people who just are not saved. And what's the difference between the two? It is not their intelligence level. People of all intelligence levels, either on, on both sides of this. It's not their stature in the community. There are people that are well-known on both sides of this. It's not the religious background because Jews and Gentiles alike come to faith and Jews and Gentiles alike are rejecting Christ. It's, it's not how much wealth they have because we've seen rich and the poor come to Christ and deny him. It's not even the evidence that's right in front of them. We have seen people watch Jesus do incredible, mind-blowing miracles only to walk away from him. The determining factor between those who will repent and believe and those who won't is the condition of their heart. Those who won't believe have hardened hearts of stone. And those who believe have transformed hearts prepared for the gospel. This man is walking away from Christ because he has a hard, unrepentant heart. Right? 
true to his nature. By the way, his nature now is on full display for who he really is. Because what we see him as somebody else, as a rich young synagogue ruler who, right, who does good things, suddenly we see him for his wicked heart. This man is walking away from Christ because he is just like everyone else. For all of his religious posturing and for all of his culture and all of his self-righteousness, this man is, is, is every bit the unrepentant sinner as anyone else. Just like the sinners and tax collectors he that himself would probably look down on. His heart is hardened to the gospel and the seed of the truth has been snatched away as he walks away in his grief which then gives Jesus the perfect opportunity to bring front and center what he's been preaching about this whole time. And I will wrap up kind of with this. Verse 23, it says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult how difficult it will be for those who have wrath, wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, why does that amaze them? Because to tell you the truth, it doesn't amaze us. In fact, in our context, and in the way that we see things, we would say, okay, that makes sense, right? Because we just instinctively, even though we don't want to, think of evil, rich people as evil, right? Even those of us who are not socialists, even those of us who don't think that socialism is good for our country, even those of us who don't even think that wealth itself is intrinsically you know, bad or good, right? Those of us who don't see you know, wealth as a bad thing, we still are prone in our own minds to look upon rich people as a little more evil than the rest of us by default because you know, they have more money, so obviously they're doing something wrong. Right? That's just the way that we think. That's the way we've been programmed by our culture, by the way. That's the way it is in the movies. That's the way we see it in t- on television. Um, right? We just kind of would, would assume that rich people are more evil than the rest of us. Right? And so that doesn't surprise us that, that Jesus would say that a wealthy person has a hard time entering the kingdom of God. But it surprised them. And it does surprise them, surprise them greatly, actually. So much so that Jesus actually repeats himself and says, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? Right? And then, if that's not enough, he illustrates the point and says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? You see, why were they so surprised? Because they believe, like every other Jew, that wealth was a sign of God's favor. That wealthy people, especially those, those good ones and those, those synagogue rulers and those people who were moral and high character and standing, they're rich because God's blessing them because they're good people. Right? That's kind of their assumption. They're good people. And believe me, if anybody had a leg up on going to heaven, it would be them. That's really exactly how these guys felt about this. That's their thinking. They believe that wealth equaled the favor and the blessing of God. That's why they said, who can be saved? Because if those people that God are blessing actively, right, invisibly, and they're following the rules and actually being good, nice, you know, God-fearing people, then if they can't be saved, then what about us sinners and tax collectors? It's impossible for them to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? If it's impossible for them, then it's definitely impossible for the rest of us because there's no one that can be saved, which is the point, by the way, what Jesus is making. It's impossible. It's impossible. He says it twice, adding emphasis. And and if that's not clear enough, he uses again this illustration, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Which, which again, some people then in, in history have said, well, you know, that really seems like a high standard. Maybe there's a different explanation. And so the explanation I heard when I was very young was, well, actually, they're not talking about a camel going through an eye of a needle, but rather there is this gate at the city called the eye of the needle and that the camel would have to be unloaded and then get down on his knees and he would have to crawl through and that it's actually a sign of humility. Well, the problem was with that, it's just not biblical and, and that story didn't actually exist until like the 11th century in somebody's commentary. Until that time, nobody even heard of that. Like it's just not anywhere to be found. It's, I think it's sometimes mankind's attempt to take a very difficult truth and try to like soften it a little bit. Right? That's not what Jesus was referring to, Right? What Jesus is referring to, is, as David Larson explained last time, is that they're talking about, the, he's talking about the largest animal they have ever seen, a camel, and they're talking about the smallest opening that anybody can imagine, which is the eye of a needle, because they didn't know anything about quantum physics at that time, right? 
They, and that basically what he was saying is that it's easier, right, for, to figure out how to take this gigantic animal to make it fit through this little bitty opening on the other side and come out alive and still to be a camel. It's easier for somebody to figure that out than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven by his own efforts. In other words, it's impossible that's the point. It's physically impossible. It's religiously impossible. It's practically impossible. It is absolutely humanly impossible. Salvation for anyone at all is impossible. The gulf is just too wide. Our sin is too great. The, the wrath of God is just too much. Salvation for any human being is impossible unless... God does something absolutely, stunningly miraculous. That's the point. That's why Jesus says, with man it is impossible, because it is. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. What Jesus is communicating to us. And I I think, brothers and sisters, this is the part we have to to never lose sight of, is that reconciliation of, of man to God and God to man is infinitely harder than figuring out how to push a live animal through a tiny little opening like a needle. Right? Mankind will sooner be able to do that than be able to enter the kingdom of God on his own, by his own efforts. Right? You have to understand that. You have nothing. I love you all, right? You know I love you, right? Okay. You have nothing. I think highly of you. You have nothing that warrants your entrance in the kingdom of God. As nice as you are, as loving as you are, supportive of you, you have nothing within yourself that warrants your entrance in the kingdom of God. You do nothing. There's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy. There's nothing about yourself that can cause God to say, you know what? He's doing a nice job. I think I should let him in. You can't keep the rules enough. You can't sacrifice enough. You can't love enough. You can't be compassionate enough. You can't do enough good deeds. You can't abstain from enough of the bad deeds. All you have to offer God is more justification for him to pour his wrath and judgment upon you. There's no way for you to save yourself. That's the simple truth. It's simply impossible. Salvation of one sinner is a miracle of epic proportions because God didn't come to make bad people good, he made, he come to make dead people alive. That's why Jesus uses the analogy. Salvation requires absolutely mind-blowing miracles. That's why we say over and over again that salvation is the work of God 100%. It's all him. We bring nothing to the equation. Nothing. Even this man here, right, helpless as he is, to even change his own heart, Jesus tells him what the truth is, and he can't even see it. Salvation is impossible for any human being. The only person, only way a person gets saved is by the grace of God. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And brothers and sisters, that is the gospel, by the way, that Jesus was preaching here. That's the gospel he's been preaching. Contrary to what their culture says, contrary to what liberal Christians might say, This is the gospel that that he's teaching. Jesus makes it clear that salvation is an unmerited, gracious act of a sovereign, omnipotent God. That is the gospel. And and he preached that gospel. The same gospel that Paul preached. The same gospel that we preach. It's the same gospel that Brother Tate preaches in Honduras. And those pastors there are preaching. That you are saved by faith in Christ alone. Because we are all by nature, children of wrath, with no way to save ourselves. But God in his love made a way for us to be saved, and that way is Christ. Jesus came to the earth to walk in your shoes. He lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, died on the cross to pay a penalty you couldn't pay. And on that cross, he takes upon himself your sin and in return gives you his righteousness so that you can be reconciled to God. He died literally and physically was put in the grave and three days later rose again physically and literally proving that death and sin have been conquered and he ascended into heaven and sits right now at this moment interceding for those who have faith in him. And the offer then is for all who would turn to him and believe is eternal life. If you would repent and believe that gospel, you will be saved. But that requires you repent of your self-righteousness that you repent of your self-sufficiency. 
that we would repent of our self-reliance to save ourselves and turn to Christ in helpless dependence and trust in Him alone. If we will depend upon Him and commit ourselves to Him, He is faithful to save us. And the thing that you need to understand from this text is whatever it may cost you to be there, be it your wealth or your relationships or your family or your careers or your standing in the community or whatever the costs require for you to pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow him, that cost is nothing compared to the weight of the glory that awaits all those who put their trust in Christ. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for again for this truth, and I thank you for, for your word, how it unfolds before our very eyes, this truth that, that, that faith, that salvation is only possible by grace through faith in you. That there's nothing that we can bring. There's not any rule that we can follow. There's not any, any act that we can, we can do. Lord, we have done nothing but giving you reason, ample reason, to, to pour out your judgment on us. I know I have. And again, I say it over and over again, it's the miracle that just surprises me. It's the one that takes my breath away. I don't struggle with the idea of the Trinity. I don't struggle with the idea of the Incarnation. I don't even struggle with the idea of your sovereignty and what that means for my free will, that those things still are both true, Lord. I don't struggle with that. What I struggle with is why you would say yes to someone like me, why you would decide to offer someone like me salvation, that you would pay for that then with the blood of your own son. Father, I just pray that all of us, Lord God, would just be broken by that truth, that all of us would just come and humble ourselves by that truth, that, Lord, that we would just see what you've done, and that it would, it, would, it would motivate us, Lord, to turn to you in repentance and faith, Lord, that we would just make the decision, follow you, to put our trust in you as our Savior, And I pray that, Father, if there are hearts here today that are in that place that have not done so, Father, urge them on to repent and believe the gospel. Urge them on to to turn to you in faith and to be saved. And then those of us, Lord, who are believers, Father, strip away from us all the extraneous things that get in the way from us selling out for you and being all in for your work, Father. All of us are called to be disciple-makers. All of us are, are called to go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. We might not have to do it in Honduras. We can do it right here, but all of us are called to do our part, Father. Inspire us. Convict us, Lord, to do that. I pray your blessing over this congregation. I pray your, your blessing over our brother uh, Jason and his family. We pray that they would have traveling mercies as they go back to Honduras. We pray that you bless their work. And I pray, Father God, that you glorify yourself in all of our lives and all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.